Hello, and welcome to the Rules of the Game podcast, where it is my job to discuss and compare democratic institutions. With Tarun Kaitan, I discuss moderated parliamentarism, a concept of a system of government that he describes in great detail in his paper titled Balancing Accountability and Effectiveness, a Case for Moderated Parliamentarism. It seeks to combine the most attractive elements of different regime types and electoral systems. Checks and balances from presidentialism, continuous confidence of the political executive from parliamentarism, preventing factions through majoritarian electoral systems and political plurality via proportional representation systems. Moderated parliamentarism is a version of semi-parliamentarism with two symmetric but incongruent chambers that perform different functions. It is a form of government that I have discussed with Stefan Ganghoff in a previous episode. So this insightful discussion with Tarun is an excellent follow-up to get into some further details and variations of a semi-parliamentary system. While Tarun says that he doesn't actually see a country adopting his exact version of moderated parliamentarism, the paper presents an inspiring case of design thinking with respect to democratic institutions. Tarun Kaitan is professor of public law and legal theory and head of research in the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights. He specializes in legal theory, constitutional studies and discrimination law. He is the founding general editor of the Indian Law Review and founder and advisor of the Junior Faculty Forum for Indian Law Teachers. He completed his undergraduate studies at the National Law School of Bangalore in 2004 and then came to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and completed his postgraduate studies, including his Doctor of Philosophy at Exeter College. Tarun Kaitan was also awarded the 2018 Latin Prize, an award given every two years to a young researcher under the age of 45, conducting research of great social relevance. Please follow Tarun Kaitan on Twitter and I will link to his website in the show notes. I am your host, Stefan Kiburz, and this is the 29th episode of the Rules of the Game podcast. I am a political economist with a PhD in economics from the University of Bern in Switzerland, and I previously held positions at the London School of Economics and Political Science and the Center for Global Development. You'll find a full transcript of this episode on my website, rulesofthegame.blog. I am always curious to hear your opinion, so just send me an email to stefan.kyberts at gmail.com. And please leave a review and share this episode with friends and colleagues. If you find my discussions interesting and you'd like to support my work, consider buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com and you'll find the link to it on my website rulesofthegame.blog. Now, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Tarun Kaitan. Tarun Kaitan, welcome to the Rules of the Game podcast. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Stefan. It's a pleasure to be here. So my first question, as always, is what is your first memory of democracy? 
can I have two? Because I don't remember which one was first. I grew up in a small town in India. And one of them is about a broadcast of a parliamentary proceeding on the television. I don't remember how old I was, but I asked an uncle of mine who was there, what do they do in parliament? As it turned out, he didn't know either. So he told me they make a lot of noise. <laughs> and and that was, you know, in hindsight, quite a, it's a grown-up adult probably knows about the world around him, but had no clue what parliament, in fact, does. And that was very interesting to me. Now, it is interesting to me now. Then it was just baffling. The second is that there was uh, a book fair in my small town. It was a book fair, a luxury then, but uh, so an annual book fair where lots of booksellers would come and set up stores. And I remember going to one of the shops which was selling books on politics. I don't know how old I was, probably 12 or 13. And I asked for a copy of the Constitution. And the seller just looked extremely patronizing at me and said, that's not for children, and sent me packing. So who knows what might have happened if I had received a copy of the Constitution. Maybe that would have been the end of my potential legal career, so maybe I should be grateful. But those those two things uh, still stick in my mind. Mm, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing those memories. And I think it's it's super uh, interesting that you wanted to see the Constitution very early on. So you, you wanted to see what foundations the country is built on in terms of uh, legal documents. So today I'd like to discuss the paper that you've written called Balancing Accountability and Effectiveness, a Case for Moderated Parliamentarism, published in the Canadian Journal of Comparative and Contemporary Law. It's a very interesting paper. I really enjoyed reading it and I think it's really a, a response to more traditional government systems. So we usually distinguish between presidentialism and parliamentarism. And you try to find a way of optimizing a government system that fulfills many of the principles of democratic governance, including accountability and effectiveness that a government should really have. But going back to presidentialism, parliamentarism, where do you see like the, what are in your view the most greatest problems with those more traditional systems? Sure. Um... I'll start with presidentialism because in some ways that seems easier to me in terms of identifying problems with. I think the main problem with presidentialism is what Gangoff is called uh, executive personalism. The centralization of vast amounts of executive authority in one person, uh, that's always a recipe for potential disaster. The The second problem with presidentialism, as I'm sure you know, political science literature for a very long time has has shown that it's it's an unstable form of democracy. It's a democratic form that's very likely to fall apart. And that's not surprising to me, I think a likely explanation. I know that there is a chicken and egg debate in the literature about whether 
unstable regimes are more likely to select presidentialism or presidentialism is more likely to cause instability. Be that as it may, uh, the relationship between democratic instability and presidentialism is quite robustly established. And and I suspect uh, the explanation lies in the fact that presidentialism creates losers who are completely out of power in ways that parliamentarism does not. Parliamentarism allows different factions, different social coalitions to have some stake in power and therefore uh, less of an incentive to upend the system itself. So that, I think, is the major problem with presidentialism. It's instability and it's forever teetering on the edge of authoritarianism. Uh, And it's not surprising to me that every wannabe autocrat elected democratically wants to move their system towards a more presidential model, you know, whether it's Sri Lanka or in many other, or, 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 or Modi in India, you know. So, so what is it, what, what do they know that we haven't noticed? So, so that's my main problem with presidentialism. With parliamentarism, I think the main, the most important problem is the lack of an effective check on the government in power during its reign in systems that have the legislature elected under a majoritarian process or the lack of an effective government at all in systems that use PR for electing the chamber. So parliamentary governance involves two different risks and these risks depend on the type of electoral system the polity uses. Either it it uses a majoritarian system to create a a ruling party with an absolute majority in the House, in which case it governs for its term without any real check on its powers. Or, uh, as we are seeing currently in Israel, it creates uh, huge instability in the system with many tiny parties holding the balance of power and making governance extremely difficult. So those are, I think, the main risks with parliamentarism at either extreme. Thanks for sharing those opinions and insights. And I agree, I think in parliamentarism, really the the main problem is that on the one side, we want to have a good representation of the people, right, in a representative democracy. But obviously that also implies more smaller parties with more specific interests but this creates as we know like uh, an instability in governance and your suggestion of a moderated parliamentarism definitely tries to balance the the more proportional elements that create a good representation in one chamber and a more majoritarian stable party landscape in the first chamber that should support the, the executive governance. But before we come to the details of your suggestion of moderated parliamentarism, you put in your paper a lot of emphasis on the party, the political party and the political party landscape. And as we know, parties, I think all, all over the world, haven't the best reputations. And, and often people, especially also now in the US, I think with the Republican and the Democratic Party, there is a lot of call for almost abolishing the party, even though political parties are really important for uh, political work, for productive parliaments. Can you maybe give 
so an overview of why you think parties are really important and maybe also what it implies for your suggestion of moderated parliamentarism? I think that democracy, representative democracy at least, is impossible without political parties. And we, uh, we ignore parties at our peril and we hate parties at our peril. This is not to say that real-world parties are perfect, but we, we need, and part of the ambition of this paper is to think about how we can make party systems more healthy. So the importance of parties for me lies in their ability to reduce what I think are four key costs that every democracy imposes. Imagine you are a democracy, a direct democracy in a reasonably large state. Direct democracy may well function in a very tiny polity, but for reasonably large states, the political participation cost that direct democracy imposes on every citizen is huge. In order to make, you know, assume a reasonably sized state with hundreds of thousands of people, for one individual citizen to make any meaningful difference, even a tiny amount of influence on any aspect of political life would require her to basically give up everything else and engage in politics as a full-time occupation. And, and still the chances, the likelihood of any success would be minimal. Right? What parties do is allow individuals to pick these package groups and moderate the amount of political participation costs they want to incur by voting for it, by affiliating with it, by becoming full members, by becoming party cadre, by becoming party politicians, etc. So it allows a whole range of options by reducing the political participation cost for individuals, which is impossible without parties. The second thing parties do is they reduce the the information cost for voters. In a system, in a system of direct democracy, uh, in a system of representative democracy without parties, because even in direct democracy, you will need to elect some executive officials, right? You will have to have some method of choosing them. You could use sortition by, by lot, uh, but if you want to use elections, the information cost that every voter has to incur for selecting candidates for executive office, at least, in a party-less system, it's huge. How do you know the amount of research uh, and time you have to spend to find out what this candidate stands for, what they're likely to do in governance, is very high. And again, party membership reduces those costs. Uh, You know, of course, not perfectly, but reasonably well. Uh, What is the ideology of this person? What are the types of policies you're likely to get if you vote for them, etc.? The third thing they do is they reduce the policy packaging cost in a polity. Unlike individuals, parties collect a package of sometimes perhaps internally inconsistent policies, put them in a package together in ways that allow sometimes even warring social groups to come together on the same platform. Because and this is the ideal of a compromise in politics. Right? But nobody gets everything, but enough people get enough that they can stay within the system and give it legitimacy. And parties alone can offer that kind of packaging role. Something like parties will have to do that. Individuals on their own in a reasonably complex system simply cannot do that. And parties also reduce ally prediction costs for politicians. Right? Who is likely to be a forever enemy? 
who is likely to be an ally, who may be someone I can talk to and convince if I do certain things. These are all things that parties make possible. Parties make politics possible in complex systems by giving, again, a good proxy for, proxy for who is an ally, who might, who might not be an ally. And these are things that that the kind of uh, utopian imaginary that you know currently is taking hold everywhere of party-less system uh, is, I think, utterly incompetent of reducing. And if these costs are incredibly high, I don't think we can have a functional democracy in the system. I totally agree with that. And also it's interesting that you mention both direct democracy and sortition as alternatives to representative democracy, where I think what is really lacking also in, in those propositions is, or that, you know, a lot of people say that uh, we should just by lot, by sortition, have a group of citizens to work on political issues. And I think what is lacking there often is, you know, the political knowledge, how, how politicians actually have to work with each other. And there is a lot of know-how there as well about legislation and how legislation can be changed, a lot of political processes. And I think that's often not really talked about in this sortition-based political solutions. And the same for direct democracy, for that matter. Yeah, Stefan, I could not agree more on that point. And in fact, you know, if I was rewriting this paper, I would probably include a, a fifth reason for having parties, which is political training uh, and expertise. We imagine politics to be a profession that does not require any expertise and nothing could be further from the truth. Politics, uh, at least, well, it requires, in order to function well, it requires repeat players players who know that they will have to deal with the same people again, and therefore uh, certain rules of the game, to echo the name of your podcast, <laughs> yeah. have to be agreed upon. And it requires a certain mode of operating, which can only be learned by spending time in politics. For example, opening yourself to criticism, which, by the way, human beings are not designed to like, right? As an academic, I'm used to criticism, but I'm used to a very certain type of criticism, right? Which is usually engaged. It's based on what I've actually said. It's measured and it's, uh, it follows a certain format, right? Politicians, they have to face criticism that is frequently unfair, often unmerited, uh, often exaggerated uh, by saying, you know, a lot of it is merited, right? But often it's not. And so it's a tough job. You have to meet people who are completely unlike you, people from all walks of life. But judges don't have to, and academics don't have to, and journalists, perhaps some journalists too, right? But, but in different ways. So it is a specialist profession that requires expert knowledge and specialist skills that uh, you're absolutely right in saying sufficient cannot uh, approximate to. Exactly, exactly. And also on the other side, direct democracy, I think, can be a check on representative democracy, it can guide certain broad decision-making by the people, but it definitely doesn't uh, substitute for the very tedious, detailed work of political systems at the representative level. And I think what is important to mention is that, you know, representative democracy is influenced by special interest groups, by corporate lobbying, 
by wealthy donors, etc. And I think that's where your paper is also interesting because you try to make the system more stable and also more representative of the people on the one side, while you try to include the elements of effective and stable governance. So moving over to your paper and to finally talk more about moderated parliamentarism, can you give a brief overview of what are the key elements of your proposition? Sure. So the key idea is, well, the starting assumption is that we have had enduring debates about presidentialism and parliamentarism on the one hand, and between the, and the merits and demerits of different electoral systems on the other hand, because each of those systems brings something to the table, which without it will be lost. So, for example, presidentialism bring, incorporates the idea of the legislative check on executive power, which parliamentarism does not. Parliamentarism incorporates the idea of a collective responsibility and of the ultimate legislative check on insecure executive tenure, which makes uh, personalization of power uh, difficult. We already talked about the fact that uh, parliamentary systems uh, result in governmental instability under certain electoral systems and presidential systems result in uh, regime instability, usually. But uh, so, so each have their advantages and each has its disadvantages. Likewise, PR systems, as you say, are more representatives, more representative, but incur costs. And uh, majoritarian systems uh, can result in more effective governments, but also less responsive governments, at least to the opposition. So moderated parliamentarism tries to create a system where we can have our cake and eat it too. That is, that is the main objective, to see whether we can optimize. We can't maximize these goals because they are mutually inconsistent. They, they trade off against each other. But can we optimize them so that we can have enough of each of these benefits? So that's one motivation of the paper. The second motivation of the paper is to bring parties to discussions of institutional design and constitutional law because the assumption in of a lot of constitutional scholars is that they take the party system as a given and think about institutions around it. My view is that institutions and party systems are mutually co-constructed, right? But just as party systems construct institutions, institutions also construct the type of party system we have. So constitutions also need to think about the type of party system that is healthy for democracy, that is good for democracy, rather than just assuming that we'll have the party system that we'll have. Of course, there are path dependencies and lots of issues here that, you know, I'll, I'll bracket off for now. So, so the paper starts with offering four principles that constitutions should seek in relation to party systems. And I'll briefly just outline them. It says that uh, constitutions should seek to maximize the purposive autonomy of parties in that, you know, parties are quintessentially a hybrid public-private entity. They're not fully public. It's a mistake to treat them as fully public because they will fail to perform their link between the state and the people in that unofficial capacity that is best for them to perform that role. But they're also purposive in that their purpose is to exercise public power. Right? And this 
classical hybridity make them complex creatures for constitutional law, which likes entities which are either public or private. And this Hydra type entity is complicated, but that is the key challenge for constitutional law to maximize their purposive autonomy. The second principle is party system optimization, which is a party system, an optimal party system in terms of number of parties is one which which has every salient voter type, and this can change in polities, but every salient voter type represented by a political party. So it's very dangerous and destabilizing for a party system to have a large voter type, whether it's a, on the economic left-right axis, say the left voters, or or on cosmopolitan nativist axis. But if, if a polity has a sufficiently large salient voter type, not giving it a political home in a political party is a recipe for disaster because that voter type becomes an unspent political force and it creates internal pressures within the polity which will eventually implode, right? So it is important for party system optimization that every salient voter type has a political home in a political party. But it's also important that the number of parties is not so large that the the costs that we talked about parties lowering, they fail to do so, right? So the voter information costs will be extremely high in a system which has, you know, a hundred parties or a fifty parties or whatever, right? So so there's a balance to be struck there between between those two. The third principle is party state separation. This should be pretty obvious. But you know, we talk about separation of powers in constitutional studies in terms of institutional separation. I think it's a lot more important to talk about separation of party and the state because the idea of a democracy is built on the ruling party leaving office peacefully when it loses elections. Right? The party comes to control government for a short period of time, but not the state. And that the government, the executive government, is only a small part of the state. So that separation has to be ensured. And finally, the anti-faction principle, which is that a party system must incentivize, encourage. I'm not talking about hard and fast legal rules here, but systems can do second-order regulation by encouraging parties to act like parties and not like factions. And this is an old distinction in political science. The idea is that factions seek to only represent the interests of a section of the people, whereas genuine parties, even when they are targeting sectional interests, for example, interest of labor or interest of, say, a religious minority or a racial minority, that their policies must be justifiable to all the people on the basis of public reason, on the basis of a broad political ideal that everybody, reasonably speaking, can sign up to. For example, that marginalized communities have the first claim on the state's resources. Right? That is the principle that everybody can sign up to, irrespective of where they belong. Uh, but to say that only a certain group, as such, should have a claim on the state because of its ethnic identity, for example, that's not a principle that everybody can sign up to, and therefore that would be a faction. So these are the four principles that I believe any system of institutional design must bear in mind when thinking about how to allocate state power. And I think it's really well laid out in your paper, so I really recommend people to to read the paper because these are kind of like 
principles that are in the background that are rarely talked about directly, at least in, in public. So it's, it's a, a really insightful part of the paper. Then how do these principles uh, work in, in your proposition? So just as an overview, you propose two-chamber system with a confidence and opposition chamber that is based on a majoritarian electoral law and then an appointing and checking chamber that is based on a proportional electoral system. So that is just the introduction. And you may, you know, lay out the, the details. Just to be clear on the terminology, so the confidence and opposition chamber, you call the first chamber, right? Yeah. And the appointing and checking chamber is the second chamber. And you don't call it like upper and lower chamber, right? Because they are symmetric. So please give some more of the details of the two chambers and how they relate to the executive government. So here is the idea, the proposed model. And by the way, this is not a manifesto. This is a, um, in writing this paper, I should be clear, I'm thinking about a normative yardstick to measure existing systems by and thinking about, uh, this is a third experiment to use it to think about existing systems and what they might be lacking, right? So I'm not, I'm not necessarily proposing this as, as this utopian ideal vision. I should be very clear about that. But um, so here is, here is one way of optimizing uh, the benefits of the various debates that we have seen for a long time. Uh, in moderated parliamentarism, it's a parliamentary system. So, uh, and the key feature of the parliamentary system is first that the executive is united Unlike semi-presidentialism, the executive power is not divided between a president and, and a prime minister. The executive power is vested in a cabinet of ministers, with the prime minister being the first among equals. So it is a parliamentary system to that, that extent. What is special about moderated parliamentarism is that it is a form of what Gangoff calls semi-parliamentarism. In semi-parliamentarism, it's the legislature that is divided. So semi-parliamentarism insists upon a bicameral legislature, which has two directly elected chambers. So both chambers are democratically accountable to the people directly. And the third feature of parliamentarism is also present in this model, which is that the term of the political executive of the cabinet is not fixed. So they don't have security of tenure. Uh, the prime minister and the cabinet can be fired by one of the two chambers, not by either chamber. And that is why this is semi-parliamentary, not uh, parliamentary in the full budget sense. So the, the chamber that can fire the prime minister, I've called it the confidence and opposition chamber, that is designed as a centripetal centrist chamber which approximates to what political scientists call the median voter in uh, in some context. Of course, when you have more than one salient political axis in a polity, you may not have a median voter, but I'll, I'll set that aside, that problem aside for a moment and just describe this chamber, which is, it's a majoritarian electoral system-based chamber. By the way, I should say that uh, first past the post is often talked of as a majoritarian system, but it's not a majoritarian system. It's a plurality-based system. In first under first past the post, in any system with more than two parties, the ruling party can get over fifty percent of the seats while only winning anything between thirty 
to 50% of the votes, right? So it's a plurality-based system. It's not a majoritarian system, but my, um, and a moderated parliamentarism, the confidence chamber will be based on a genuinely majoritarian electoral system. And a good example of that would be uh, what is called the alternative vote system or the ranked choice voting system. I'm not going to go into the detail, but voters typically rank either all or some or the top three or the top two of their choices uh, or or the approval system where voters don't rank but are allowed to select more than one candidate that they are happy with if they are elected. So it's a candidate-based system. The entire chamber is, is elected in one go wholesale and it must have the most recent electoral mandate. So as a whole, between the two chambers, the confidence chamber must have, temporarily speaking, the most recent mandate of the people. And it will become clear in a moment how I mean that. The second chamber, and, and this is the chamber, by the way, the, the first chamber, the central people confidence and opposition chamber. This is the chamber that functions like a normal parliamentary system chamber, right? Which is, it elects the prime minister who appoints the cabinet. The chamber can bring in and pass no confidence motions. The government will have to resign. The government must continuously have the confidence of this house. So this chamber is really to bring about stable governance, right? With the majoritarian system. Exactly. So the purpose of this chamber primarily is to is to get the effectiveness benefit of effective government benefits of majoritarian parliamentary systems. Right? In majoritarian parliamentary systems, governments are effective. Prime ministers are insecure, but they're insecure in a special way. In that prime ministers don't, to retain office, they typically don't have to watch the opposition so much. But they do have to watch their backbench MPs. So prime ministers can get away with a lot, but they cannot get away with annoying or losing the trust of their own MPs. And as you have seen in the UK recently, Boris Johnson lost the trust of his own MPs and had to step down, right? So, so there is a, there's this check on the prime minister, but it's the check in terms of retaining office, but that check is internal. That check is to the party establishment. And again, you know, some people don't like the word party establishment, but as I've just explained, I think that is a very positive and valuable feature of a democracy, that uh, strong parties. So parliamentary systems, we know, create strong parties vis-a-vis -vis their leaders. And uh, this chamber will enable parties to be healthy and will ideally create parties of governance, which will be broad church parties. They will vie for the second preference votes of the voters who don't like them enough. So, you know, in a ranked choice ballot or an approval ballot, only parties that can at least be tolerated by an actual majority of voters come to office, right? Polarizing parties tend to be like Marmite, right? They are your first choice or your last choice. And they don't win in alternative voting systems. So what this chamber ensures, what it tells parties, and this is this is how institutions shape parties, right? How institutions incentivize parties. This chamber signals to political parties that if you want to become a party of governance, which is that if you want to either get power or be the main opposition party that is vying for power, 
then you need to appeal to second choice votes of voters who do not like you enough to give you their first choice votes. Right? So you cannot be an object of hatred of the voters. It incentivizes parties to build broad churches. Right? And so the expectation is that only broad church parties will manage to get into this chamber and polarizing parties or single issue parties will struggle to get into this chamber. So to summarize, the way I read the paper was that what you have in mind is a Westminster type of government opposition system in the confidence and opposition chamber. But you tweak the chamber for it to be elected on a moderated majoritarian electoral system, such as approval voting or a ranked choice preferential vote system, and not for a spouse to post, so that parties have to appeal to a broader segment of the electorate. Yet still, you have this opposition role with a shadow cabinet and the check on the government in that chamber. That's how I see this this chamber. That's broadly right. I will just add one more thing to that. So I, I think that, you know, I'm working on a separate paper on opposition rights and powers, and I think that is critical to a healthy democracy. So you're absolutely right that this kind of chamber would provide for a reasonably unified opposition to the government, a very powerful rather than a disintegrated a uh, diffuse opposition with multiple small parties. But this system is different from Westminster in one key respect, which is because of the electoral system, in that it does not punish small parties as severely as the Westminster system does. So under ranked choice ballot, let's imagine two different types of small parties in a polity. Right? One is the Green Party which is a small party with a, it has evolved into a plenary political party. It's no longer a single issue party in most jurisdictions. Environmental protection is key to its agenda, but it also has a fully developed political agenda. But nevertheless, it remains a relatively small party and often associated with a single issue in the minds of many voters. So let's assume a green party and let's assume a nativist far-right majoritarian party. These are all small parties in a given jurisdiction. In this confidence chamber, the two part, neither of these two parties, the Greens or the Nativist Party, is likely to win any seats or many seats. But that is not where the distinction ends. The system treats the two parties completely differently. Why? Because before an election, Members of the centrist larger parties, the mainstream parties, you can call parties of governance, will want the second choice votes of the Green Party. And in order to do that, at least one of them is likely to make a deal with the Green Party. And this is how it's worked out in Australia, and there's good uh, evidence to see it and function there. Um, the pre-electoral deals where, for example, say Labour uh, tells the Greens that in exchange for putting two of your key policy commitments in our manifesto, will you advise your voters to put us down as your sec- as their second choice? Right. So these pre-electoral coalitions 
mean that Greens are likely to get some of the agenda to influence the government's parties. However, for extremely polarizing parties, they tend to be untouchable. They tend to be toxic for the mainstream parties in ways that being seen to be making a deal with them to get their second choice votes can actually lose a mainstream party some of its first choice voters. And therefore, you're likely to see the system penalizing Greens far less than the nativists. And that is a key way in which the system can make a distinction between hateful parties and small parties with a positive agenda. Now, of course, this will not work in a system where 80% or 70% or even 50% of the population is racist, but then no design can help that system. (laughs) You need something else in that system. So that is a key difference. Super interesting. And I interrupted you when you wanted to go over to the second chamber. And I think that's even more interesting in terms of uh, legislative work and representation. So the second chamber is where the benefits of presidentialism are brought into the parliamentary model and hence moderated or semi-parliamentarism. So the second chamber is a proportional chamber. It's elected under PR. Uh, with a high threshold to, again, keep the very tiny parties out of the system. So it's moderated again. But it is still proportional, proportionally elected. So both the Greens and the reasonably popular nativist parties, say 8 to 10% vote shares, will get into this chamber. The point of this chamber is to check the government and to make constitutional appointments appointments to the higher judiciary, appointments to the what I've in my work called guarantor institutions, like electoral commissions, human rights bodies, so constitutional bodies that are not part of the executive and therefore should be elected in a post-partisan manner. Where you want a broad base, right? They should be broadly supported. Absolutely. So that's the function of this chamber. It has equal legislative power as the first chamber, with two possible exceptions. One is that it, it does not, it cannot bring down the government, so it does not have confidence power. And and that's why it's semi-parliamentarism, right? That's the important difference. Exactly. And that might have implications for uh, finance bills or money bills, because holding up the um, a finance bill is in effect in no confidence vote. So it has implications for its legislative power. And there, if the two houses disagree, then some formula has to be arrived where uh, the proportional checking chamber cannot effectively uh, bring down the government on its own. But otherwise, it has equal legislative power. So the government's legislative agenda has to go through this chamber as well. That is the checking function that is akin to presidentialism. And presidentialism, as we know, there's a strong check on the executive's ability to get legislation through if the opposition party controls the legislature. There is almost no check or very little check if the same party controls the legislature. And then people have written, so Pildes and uh, Levinson have talked about united and divided government in the U.S. working very differently. Moderated parliamentarism is even better than the presidential system in the legislative check on executive power, because unlike the presidential system, where either the executive has no check or is completely dysfunctional, 
depending on the strength of the party system and tribal loyalties. In this model, this chamber is designed in a way that no ruling party is likely to ever have a majority in the appointment system, in the appointing chamber, which means that any ruling party will have to work with at least a part of the opposition to get its agenda through. So it will never be without a check. But it's also designed in a manner that the opposition in this chamber is diffused rather than united. And therefore, a reasonably flexible ruling party should always be in a position to secure some opposition support for all its bills. Not the same part of the opposition. It may change, right? It might be an issue-based coalition on different bills. And that's how I imagine this chamber. So while the government will always be checked because it will always need to reach out across the aisle, it will rarely be stymied. It can only be stymied when a diffused opposition elected through a PR system collectively stands up against the government. And even then, there is a mechanism for dispute resolution when the two chambers disagree. Right? But why will the ruling party never have a majority in this chamber? For the simple reason that when you have an important legislative chamber elected on the PR model, it's likely to create space in the party system for smaller parties to thrive. So unlike the Westminster system that squeezes out smaller parties in ways that there's no point in having a small party uh, because you will never win seats and never win influence, this chamber gives the small parties a share in political power, a space in the heart of government, and therefore there will be parties which may have no interest in becoming parties of governance, but they will be within the system. What that does is it satisfies our optimization principle. If there is a salient voter type, it will have a seat in the proportional chamber, in the checking chamber, and therefore a voice. So no salient voter type will be left without a political home. And what that means is that this model will necessarily create a multi-party democracy, not a two-party democracy. But this multi-party democracy will still have two centers of gravity because of the difference between the two chambers. So there will still be parties of governance that are vying for political office in the executive, which will be two or three in number, and many other constellation of parties that will form issue-based coalitions for certain agendas of the government to go through. So that's broadly the idea behind this chamber. It must be a staggered chamber. And now I come to your question about temporality and why that matters. It staggered in the sense that a third of its or a fourth of its membership retires every two years or whatever. Its MPs should have longer period in office between 5 and 15 years. I'm not sure you know, different polities can choose what they like. Uh, the term must be longer than the confidence chamber. And what this will ensure is that because the checking chamber's mandate is always an older mandate, at least for some of its main members, compared to the appointment chamber, compared to the confidence chamber, that justifies the right of supplying confidence 
for the confidence chamber because it's always in possession of the more recent democratic mandate and that is important to avoid a legitimacy tie between the two chambers the worry about two directly elected chambers is that the second chamber will try to claim the power to appoint the executive why should we not have this power if we are also elected right and this that leg- the worry about the political legitimacy tie can be broken by giving the centripetal chamber the most recent electoral mandate but it also brings into the system a type of stability by allowing mps in the second chamber to take the longer term view because they have longer tenures and fixed terms we can also introduce other checks like ensuring that you know if you want a diversity of views people from outside the political system to be appointed by parties can ensure that people who have ever stood for office in the first chamber cannot be nominated for the second chamber in party list you can have disabilities after you leave office in the upper chamber you can't be in active politics or whatever but you can make sure that that this chamber also maximizes expertise in governance in a way so that's an additional benefit would you also say that this chamber may grow or maybe the the larger chamber to better reflect different interests in the population that is not something i've thought a lot about i think that in terms of size you know we sort of in constitutional theory think of sort of 100 members in a legislature sort of a minimum rule of thumb requirement that you know below that is significantly large population will struggle to find representation obviously the population of the country matters i think there's an upper threshold as well a chamber which is more than 500 600 members will struggle to to do any real uh, effective deliberation and debating so between that range what is the kind of ratio you want to have will depend on a multiple number of factors it will depend on whether it's a federal or a unitary system whether you have other levels of government what is the size of the country uh, etc so I don't have very strong views about that but it has to be within a, a goldilocks zone not too small not too big yeah, yeah usually in political science i think the kind of rule of thumb is the the cube root of the population which i think is quite a good benchmark i would say but the good thing is that this chamber you could essentially expand to include more interests, right? Absolutely. Because government stability doesn't depend on it. And I think the PR system should reflect that. But the value of this is that it keeps the crazies within the system. And I think that's hugely important. So take uh, the British example for a moment. The Brexit UKIP or you know, the UK Independence Party, which spearheaded the Brexit movement right one of the problems in my view was that the westminster parliamentary system did not allow ukip to get into parliament because it was a polarizing small party what it meant was that it stayed outside the system and therefore became a lot more dangerous than it might have been within the system what it ended up doing was recasting the tory party in its own image exactly the conservatives were reconfigured whereas under moderated parliamentarism they would have found a legitimate but constrained voice within the system which would have moderated them which would have ensured that they 
that their sense of grievance was kept in check because you are with you know so i would like to compare i know they're very different systems but the fate of one nation party in australia has been very different from brexit right one nation party gets a seat in the senate which is proportionately elected it never gets a seat in the house which is elected on a rank choice system it is within the system they have a pulpit to rank but they have not managed to destroy the system by effectively taking over any of the larger parties in a way that happened in the UK so i think that's actually a good thing to keep the crazy parties closer to power and also it also makes them see the reality of governance up close in ways that hopefully will have a moderating impact yeah and i think the appointing and checking chamber your second chamber definitely would include those voices right in the legislative process even but they wouldn't you know have enough power to be a threat to democracy or to bring through like major decisions that are not in in the interest of the people for example exactly and by the way i should say they will get in the chamber only if they appeal to a sufficiently large percentage of the of the voters right so if they're too small you know tiny crazy parties i think should be outside the system when they become a threat to the system is when they are they have the support of you know 7 8 9 10% of the population that is when you cannot ignore them and that is when the system ignores them at its own peril because then they become an unspent force and can lead to an explosion but by bringing them in the system i think if anything the support dissipates because that grievance of being the anti-establishment party is hard to sustain when you are in parliament but uh, the other thing i should mention about the proportional uh, checking and appointing chamber is its appointment function is also there's a formula of multipartisanship a special formula which i've called weighted multipartisanship yeah which i think is also very cool <laughs> okay well thank you very much <laughs> so the idea of weighted multipartisanship is that the two largest the first constitutional appointment should not be made by the ruling party that is a straightforward implication of the party state separation principle that constitutional appointments should be made by broad party consensus but not even by the two large governance parties but the formula is that the appointments are made not in proportion of the seats in the appointment chamber but the largest and parties in this chamber again it will depend on the system the largest seven parties the largest five parties the largest whatever number you want constitute an appointment committee with equal votes so if you have a five member appointments committee it will represent the five largest party in the appointments chamber so the strength in the committee is not proportional to the votes uh, share they have in this chamber and these five members will make appointments to the judiciary to electoral commissions etc and that ensures that a the interest of smaller parties is not ignored the two large parties cannot form a cartel to make appointments in ways that effectively uh, closes the system to the little parties which is what happened in the us and you know there's a fantastic paper by uh, it's a dated paper now by uh, sam zakarov and the pildes uh, published in the 90s uh, late 90s and i believe it's called uh, political parties 
and markets or something along those lines, political systems as markets. I will link to it in the show notes, yeah. Please do. Competition law logic to show how the two American parties have catalyzed to, to close the American system to any third party emerging and they've done so using law, right? So the appointment chamber will use a five-member voting system. And again, if they are required to make appointments using a ranked choice system, then the system will ensure that only nominees who appeal to more than two parties will actually get appointed, right? Uh, because you'll have to put forward, every party will have an incentive to put forward nominees who will get the, at least the second choice votes of enough opponents and therefore get in. And that, that I think, um, is a critical part of the appointment system, which again represents the idea of the five largest parties is that I'm assuming the five largest parties will between them represent anything between 70 to 90% of the voters in the electorate. And therefore, the idea is that constitutional appointments are made in the name, not of a small majority of the voters, 51%, for example, but of, of the entire people or as close to the entire people as possible, while making sure there's no possibility of deadlock. So no party can hold up appointments. There will always be an appointment. And that's that's what the system is. So basically, you can see the broad guiding principle, right? That decisions must happen. So deadlock and dysfunction is ruled out by giving a veto to the main opposition party in the presidential system, for example. So government will function, things will happen. But in order for them to happen in particular ways, some cross-party alliances have to be made. Some part of the opposition has to support the winning bill or the winning candidate. And that also prevents, for sure, the capture of the government administration, right, by the ruling party or by the ruling parties because appointments to the administration, appointments to the court system would require this very broad-based agreement on, on candidates. Absolutely. And uh, so this is straight out of the playbook of many latter-day autocrats, right? In, in my paper on killing a constitution with a thousand cuts, I've shown how the Modi government in India basically captured all of these independent constitutional, most of these independent constitutional institutions by using its appointment powers and excluding the opposition sometimes from the process through very dubious constitutional means. But uh, this is exactly the kind of system which will ensure that the ruling party cannot entrench itself into the state, and only has temporary hold on the executive government of the day. And I think that's also a really crucial and beautiful element of your suggestion. So for people who would like to read more on, on your proposition, obviously I will link to the paper. There was a great blog series that I will link to where Various scholars have replied to your paper, so I, I thought that was very insightful. But do you have any other suggestions of books or articles either related to moderated parliamentarism or to any other books that you think are, are really interesting? Well, you know, I think uh, Gangoff's book on semi-parliamentarism is definitely worth reading here. I had a podcast with him as well, so people, of course, can listen to that podcast as well. Excellent. The other book, this is not related to this 
why it is related, I suppose. The book that is currently uh, getting a lot of my attention is Karen Stenner's book on the authoritarian dynamic, where she talks about, she's a political psychologist and talks about an authoritarian predisposition that about a third of any reasonably sized human population is likely to have and how the task of politics is to make sure that that predisposition remains untriggered. I think that there's an argument waiting to be made how moderated parliamentarism is arguably one of the best ways to make sure that that authoritarian predisposition will not be triggered or if triggered will be moderated in uh, in any social group but anyway that's that's a hunch that's a hypothesis so there is a connection there but i would strongly recommend reading that book to anybody who's interested in democracy and authoritarianism anyway thanks uh, i'll link to that as well in the in the show notes so tarun thanks a lot for joining the conversation on the rules of the game podcast i, I really enjoyed the conversation and yeah, hopefully we'll we'll be able to have another chat uh, another day. I think uh, you have so many interesting papers and, and books that we'd be very happy to have you again on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure and I would love to come again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I really appreciate you've taken the time. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. It really helps my message to get heard. If you have suggestions for future episodes or feedback on the podcast, don't hesitate to contact me by email at stefan.kybertz at gmail.com. I'll put my email address in the show notes. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Twitter at Skybirds, that's S-K-Y-B-U-R-Z, and on LinkedIn. If you find my discussions interesting and you'd like to support my work, consider buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com and you find the link to it on my website rulesofthegame.blog. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.